Our psalm reading this morning comes from Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. So far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. This is the word of the Lord. So if you're new here, we've been going through a series where we're looking at each of the components of our liturgy. And if you haven't been able to tell so far, this morning we're looking at song. Where does singing fit into our liturgy and our worship and our relationship with God? And strangely, as the calendar would have it, our chief musician, my staff partner, Matt Curl, is not here. Um, He's out hunting. Apparently that's more important. Uh, But... We give him a uh, time off. He, he does deserve that. Um, so I wanted to thank Lindsay, wherever Lindsay is, uh, for coming and leading. Uh, we've missed uh, her sweet voice. So thank you, Lindsay. Um, as we begin to talk about singing, uh, let me pray for us as we get started. Gracious God, as we are gathered here, considering what it would mean to trust you this week, maybe we're considering that for the very first time. As we listen to this passage, this sermon, our fears, our suspicions, our anxiety wells up within us. Maybe we've tried to trust you before and life didn't go the way we thought it should. We tried to search for you and we've encountered a church that maybe seems more intent on policing its boundaries than inviting in and welcoming the lost soul. We have hurts, we have scars, maybe from a Christian friend or maybe from a leader like myself. But beyond what's been done to us, we've also harmed others. We've hurt ourselves. And so we wonder if it's realistic to hope that in this service that you might have something to say to us, something that will be beautiful enough to change us, a light bright enough to shine into our darkness and make us light, make us new. Would you let that hope, Lord, not go unmet? We are open to your meeting us in ways that might be surprising, might be unexpected, but don't leave us as we came in. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, would you draw near to us and draw us near to you? Holy Spirit, would you do that in your power, not in mine? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
1977, uh, NASA launched Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 in the same year, speeding away from the Earth at enormous speeds. And even at those speeds that they picked up after orbiting other planets and so forth, it's going to take tens of thousands of years even to get into just another part of our own little Milky Way galaxy. And attached to each of these, affixed to them, was a golden record. And it was called the Sounds of the Earth. And on this golden record was inscribed two bodies, a male and a female. And on the record itself, if you've played it, uh, whoever might find it thousands or millions of years later, I don't know if you remember Star Trek, but they eventually found the Voyager and blew it up. That was, I don't know, how many years in the future. But they also put not just pictures of human beings, but they put the sound of a heartbeat. And they put music on this disc. Over 30 years later, Annie Droyan, who served as the creative director of the Voyager Interstellar Message Project, reflected on why she chose to include music in the sounds of the earth. The first thing I found myself thinking was of, of a piece by Beethoven from Opus 130, something called the Cavatina Movement. When I first heard this piece of music, I thought, Beethoven, how can I ever repay you? What can I ever do for you that would be commiserate with what you've just given me? And so, as soon as my colleague said, this message is going to last a thousand million years, I thought of this great, beautiful, sad piece of music on which Beethoven had written in the margin the word Sungshuk, which is German for longing. So NASA chose a great song of human longing and launched it into space as if to say this is who and what we are as human beings, creatures of longing. And one of the most immediate, most visceral, most powerful, most direct ways that they thought that they could communicate this was through music, was through songs. They launched a spaceship into the farthest reaches of our galaxy, and to communicate who we were, they included songs, particularly of human longing. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, there is singing, there is music, there is dancing. The first musician, Jubal, shows up in Genesis chapter 4, and he's called the father of all who sing, all who play the harp and the flute. Moses sings a song of praise after the exodus. Deborah sings a song of praise after victory in battle. King David played the harp, and he wrote many of the psalms that we have in our Bible that are meant to be sung to the Lord. The Lord Jesus sings a hymn with His disciples at the Last Supper. Paul and Silas, chained in jail, sing a hymn of praise to God. And the book of Revelation says that there are uh, heavenly choirs that join together in praising God. There is singing. There are songs throughout the Bible. It seems that there is something greatly important about singing. Something that's at stake about God's people singing praises to Him. Something about our longing as human beings that only singing can express. So verse 1, David says in our psalm this morning, Praise the Lord, my soul, my inmost being. Praise the Lord. We see two things in this 
one short verse, we see that song and singing employs the whole being. And we also see that, as any musician knows, it takes time to warm up. First of all, song employs the whole person. David says, all that is within me, praise the Lord. There is something about music that taps into something very deep within us. I don't know about you, but I rarely cry over sermons, except on Saturday night when I'm revisiting mine that I thought was good on Friday, and now it stinks. That's the only time I cry over a sermon. But I do cry often over what? Over music. Music moves me, and maybe it moves you almost just viscerally, almost without expectation. You don't know why in your brain, but there's something that's clicking in your soul and you begin to tear up. Music takes a hold of us in the deep places, in the recesses of our souls like few things do. Maybe a song comes on the radio and you remember the first time that someone broke up with you. You remember that boy or girl that dumped you and that song recalls to mind those emotions that you felt and you're back there, right there, immediately. Maybe there was a particular song that you sang at summer camp and it's 30 years ago, but if you hear that song now, it's like you're there. Maybe there was a song that was popular on the radio when you met your spouse for the very first time and for that month that you were getting to know him or her, that song was playing and now it just takes you right back there. Those emotions swell up again. There's this happiness, this jubilation that you feel just by hearing a song on a radio. There's something almost magical, isn't there, about that? It's almost magical in the way that music draws feelings and emotions and memories out of us that we didn't even know that maybe we had and we weren't considering at the moment. And we want to sing over that which we love. We want to sing over our spouses. We want to sing over those things that we love. And God knows this about us. Why? Because He made us. He gave us those longings. He gave us those capacities. And He meant them to be used in worship. Think about it. To sing, so much more is involved in us. So much more is asked of us than just when sitting passively and listening to a sermon. When reading when praying silently, your mind is engaged, but also your voice, your lungs, your vocal cords, your neck muscles, your tongue. Singing and music often pulls us into movement, maybe dancing, or in my case, swaying. The Psalms are full of physicality. They affirm that we are physically embodied beings and songs marshal our bodies into action. And that's why David is saying, all that is within me, all that I am, not just my brain, not just my spirit, but my body, my physicality, everything about me is brought into engagement with God. But guess what? There's another part that he hints at here that he alludes to is that it's hard that this takes time. It takes time to warm up. A musician doesn't just hop on the stage and walk up to the mic and begin belting out the lyrics. No, for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, she's backstage. She's singing scales. She's warming up her voice so that when she comes to the performance, she's able to sing properly. 
Now, let's talk for a moment. Family talk, right? Let's be honest. We're often rushing to get here on Sunday morning. The week has been busy. We've had so many tasks to do. And some of us have kids, and that makes it even more difficult to get to church. Uh, We have races downtown and events, and we have to circumnavigate all over to get to worship. And so we don't often arrive stilled. It takes time. We have to ease in. And at In Town, we try to make allowance for this. When we have big events in the city, we may start a few minutes later. We have a prelude. We have a a pre-prelude sometimes. And after Ben does the announcements, he invites us all to ask God to help prepare our hearts for worship. That we need that sense of stillness. We need that warm-up time in order to truly engage with God. And so here's a hint. If you want that time and you need that time, you got to be here for that time. So I, I get it. I have four kids. It's hard to get here on time, and I actually get paid to be here. So I'm not uh, getting on your case. It's for you. As your pastor, I want you to have this. I want you to be engaged with God, to be able to ease into worship, to have that warm-up time, to be able to sing the scales before you sing the music. It takes effort. It takes time to point your heart to God. And that's exactly what David is doing in these first two verses. He's trying to strike a match under his soul. He's trying to awaken it to God. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying to himself, to his soul, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. My inmost being, wake up and praise Him. Forget not His benefits, mind. He's talking himself into worship. Come on, soul, get with it. Get with it. There was an NPR story this week entitled, Why Saying is Believing, the Science of Self-Talk. And in it, they interviewed a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Pennsylvania. And he thinks that self-talk probably does shape, get this, the physiology of perception. Given that other sensory perceptions, the intensity of pain, for example, or whether a certain taste is pleasing or foul, even what we see can be strongly influenced by opinions, assumptions, cultural biases, and blind spots. Self-talk is more than just a confidence builder. From a neuroscience perspective, it might be more like internal remodeling. Maybe David knew something 2,500 years ago that neuroscientists are just now beginning to figure out and coming to understand. He preaches to himself. He talks his soul into worship. He doesn't expect that he can just start and worship perfectly. It takes time. He talks himself into worship. He preaches to himself. And songs tell the story in a way that no reading and no sermon can do. Song constitutes what theologian Richard Mao calls a compacted theology that impresses the theological point on your consciousness as no scholarly treatise can do. You've probably noticed that from time to time in my opening prayer, I pray, God, would you not just give us more information about the gospel, but give us all an impression of the gospel. And I pinched that idea from Tim Keller, who pinched it from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a medical doctor and a scientist. He dealt with facts, but he became a pastor. 
And he, under, he came to understand that it's less important what we know. It's less important the theological facts that are gathered in our cranium. That we need to encounter Jesus in a visceral, embodied way. And song and singing has a way of taking the truth and beauty and wonder in God's story and driving it into our souls and pulling us into that story. What is David's story? What is he singing to himself about? What does he want himself and his soul to be caught up in? What is it that he challenges himself to leap to praise about? He says, first of all, forget not his benefits. He wants his soul to remember that God doesn't deal with him as he deserves. That when he interacts with God, he's not waiting for his just deserts. But God gives him what he doesn't deserve. That God gives him grace. And here's that self-talk again. God who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. And not only that, he brings you up and crowns you with love and compassion. He goes from wallowing in a pit of sin and self-despair to being royalty seated at God's hand. David's sins have created a spiritual sickness that only God can heal. They've dug for him a pit that only God can lift him out of. And when he sees that, he says, soul, leap for joy, worship, because God comes to his rescue over and over. Why? Because God is slow to anger, but abounding in compassion, abounding in love. And how much does God love? We see verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so vast is his love that you can't measure it. And the only thing equal to his love is the fullness of his mercy and compassion. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, it's the language of infinity. It's the language of the reaches of the universe that the Voyager 1 and 2 will never get to. David is convinced that his soul shall never again experience the anger of God because why? God's boundless love has separated him from his sin and has seated him in the throne room of God. That's worth worshiping. That's worth singing about. The Apostle Paul picks up really David's phraseology here. About 1,500 years later, And he knows a little bit more of the story because what's happened since David, the real David, the final David, the son of David, Jesus has come and has laid down his life for sinners, murderers like Paul. And what does Paul say in Ephesians 3? I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. Where? In your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you may grasp how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of God. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Do You see, our noggins can't get a hold of it. It's too big. We need song. We need embodied worship. We need to experience God's love. In other words, what David is saying, what Paul is saying, and hopefully what we'll say is, soul, (laughs) rise up, 
this vastness of love that Christ embodies, that our minds can't fully wrap around, may we be drawn into singing embodied worship by Christ. The healing and the forgiveness that David experienced was no less real 1,500 years earlier. But the manner of forgiveness, the manner of Jesus' mercy was more abundantly clear to Paul. And you see, and this is important, God didn't just tell David, didn't just tell Paul that they were forgiven. He didn't just tell David, here's who I am and I really do love you. Verse 7 in our psalm says, He made known His ways to Moses, His deeds to the people of Israel. You see, God's mercy was physical. It was historical. It happened in time. There were events that David could reflect upon and look at God's deeds of mercy and love. And when you fall in love with someone, when you meet someone, they can tell you all day long, I love you, I love you, I love you, but it's really their actions, it's their deeds, it's their interacting with you that displays and embodies that love. And those two things have to go together. For Paul, and for us, we're not merely told about God's love, but the discipline of not forgetting means remembering the actual deeds of God's love in the person of Jesus. You see, this distance between us and God is bridged only by this immeasurable love and mercy. He didn't lay out for you and I the manner in which to climb up into His embrace, but He brings His embrace down. He brings His welcome down. He comes down to us and says, I welcome you free of charge. God's love and mercy is so rich and boundless that Jesus takes on flesh to bring us out of the pit and into His arms to heal us of our sin and seed us in the riches of heaven. It's a vastness of love that, that boggles the mind, and it should. It engages all of us. That God would sacrifice the life of His only Son, perfect and holy, to enfold us in this love. This is what we believe. This is what we stake our lives on. These are actual deeds and actual time that we can look at and see that God doesn't just say He loves us, but He d- He acts on that that love. And this is why the cross is central to our singing. Because without it, forgiveness is reduced just to sentimentality. And reconciliation with God remains somewhat abstract. But the Bible said that Jesus, without sin, became sin for us. That on the cross, that He bore the full weight of our sin. Do you see what is going on here. Jesus is singing a song of anguish so that you and I can sing a song of liberation and delight and freedom. On the cross, Jesus cries, my God, why have you forsaken me? As He took your sin, my sin, on Himself. God could have thrown you as far as the east is from the west, but instead He throws Jesus into your place so that your sin can be separated from you as far as the east is from the west. And strangely, perhaps, but perhaps nowhere more clearly, the cross demonstrates God's boundless, dancing, 
singing joy for you. We read earlier in Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. And He will rejoice over you with singing. Barbershop singers normally sing in a quartet. And often they claim that when their voices blend just right, they hear a fifth voice. That there is this oral illusion that's created by the harmonics that someone else has joined in them in their singing. And in the same way, when we sing to Jesus, we are not simply singing to Him, but He is joining us in singing. There's a, there's a fifth voice. When we sing the story of God, His power in creation, His affection in redemption, His patience with us, His presence with us, His concern for the world, His sending Jesus in our place, His ultimate renewal of all He has made. When we sing this story, we do so not just singing about the story, but we sing as a part of that story. We sing as being drawn up into that story. And Jesus joins us when we sing. He tells us that where two or more are gathered in My name, there I am with them. Friends, when you sing, when we sing together, Jesus is here with us singing And He is singing delight over you. God is a singing God and He joins His people in singing the story. And singing in worship, singing one song together in harmony, it begins to tune our hearts to God's song of redemption. You see, it's not just worshiping in something that we offer to God, but it's something that He begins to use to tune our hearts to Him to tune our hearts to the story, this bigger story that we're called up in to be a part of. This song of redemption that echoes and resonates through all creation. Our job is to listen and to hear it and to sing along with it. In the song that we sang earlier, there's an extra verse in Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. Is that your song? Is that your hope? May our singing as we continue to worship tune our hearts to God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we need to be tuned. We tune our hearts to so many different stories. Stories of success, stories of accomplishment, stories of commendation from our peers, from our parents, from our children even. These are the stories that come easy for us. And so we sing them. So I pray, Father, that as we continue to worship, as we come to the table, as we confess our faith, as we continue to sing, would you tune our hearts to your grace. Would you tune our hearts to the story that you're singing over your world and let us be a part of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.